Well, folks, we are continuing in the book of Genesis, so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. That's the third chapter of Genesis. We'll begin our reading there in just a moment. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll begin our reading there in verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, And he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who hast told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, And hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife, wife's name Eve, 
because she was the mother of all living. And Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life indeed and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed him and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this morning the blessing from his word. We are taking up this third chapter, but I will say at the onset that we won't be covering the entirety of the chapter this morning. Um, As we found with the second chapter, there is so much that's foundational for understanding not only, of course, the book of Genesis, but all of Scripture that requires careful attention to the details that we have in these early chapters. And so our focus this morning will simply be on the first seven verses of Genesis 3. And in these seven verses, of course, we have the dialogue between the serpent and the woman. We have familiar words that come to us that remind us of some of the things that we've even seen up to, up to this point and throughout the second chapter. And you remember what some of those points are. You find in the third chapter there is a garden. A garden with a unique tree in the midst of it. That, of course, is the focal point of this conversation. And that reminds us, of course, that we are dealing with man as he is placed, not in the place of his initial creation. He's placed into a special garden. He was created outside of, outside of the Garden of Eden and brought into it. And then once he's brought into this garden, he is also given special sanctions. There are requirements that God has laid upon him because he dwells in the place that he does. And remember what we said uh, last Lord's Day morning now, that this reminds us, of course, that Adam here is offered and really brought into a special covenant relationship with God. Something that was not coeval with Adam. It was a covenant relationship entered into after Adam's creation, not in the inception of man. And so what Adam was to learn, as you remember, as he's in this garden, is that God here is instructing him that if he wants greater good, if he wants those future blessings that are held out to him in the covenant, he needs to seek it only from God's hand. That really is, in essence, if you will, the covenant of works itself. If Adam is to secure everlasting life, he is to seek it through careful obedience to God. Because, as we saw through the second chapter, all goodness comes only from the Lord. That's the context, of course, of Genesis 3. And I want you to note just the very first verse here. As you look at the first verse, of course, you have this conversation that seems so foreign to us, the conversation between the serpent and the woman. And I won't dwell too much time on the the various technical details that relate to the serpent speaking and why the serpent is speaking and why Eve seems to be quite accustomed to the serpent speaking, none of those are really the focus of the text. The focus of the text is what you have in the very second verse. Oh, sorry, the very second line, or toward the end of verse 1. And that is what we have here in our translations, the question. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. 
Now, it's important for me to tell you here that the question mark is supplied by our translators. This was not a question in the original. What the serpent here is saying is almost, almost like a comment offhand. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The sense in the original is almost like he leaves the thought almost unfinished. It's almost as though he's looking with Eve over the tree itself and saying, God has precluded you from eating. And note the half-truth that's there. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. In other words, he maximizes the command of God, saying that God had actually restricted many things, when in fact God had only restricted one tree. And so Eve corrects him in the second verse. She says here, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's offering a corrective to the thought. But then in the third verse, she brings this limitation. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. And I want us to focus just briefly, just for a minute or two, on what's happening here. What's striking is the detail that Scripture does give us, and also this detail, of course, that Scripture doesn't. Uh, We don't have, as I just alluded to before, much conversation about any other animals in the garden speaking. We don't have much conversation, of course, leading up to this point, regarding the character of Eve and what they were doing before this conversation. Instead, what the Word of God gives us is simply these details, and simply these simple lines. And friend, as you're looking at this text, you can't help but see that there is a real sense that Eve is being lured into a conversation. She's being lured into a conversation, a dialogue. And so Satan begins... Simply offering a thought, Eve offers a corrective, and then you know, of course, what the rest of the scriptures say. In the first, in the fourth verse, we have the first formal contradiction of God. Ye shall not surely die. Ye shall not surely die. This is the first time, of course, in all of scripture that the word of God is contradicted overtly. And then verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, we could pause there, but I want to read through verse 6, and then we'll return to this. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. In verses 4 and 5, you have the formal deception. So the serpent is saying very plainly, not only is it the case that the curse of God will not fall upon you in the way that you would expect it would, but actually blessings will accrue to you in your disobedience. That's the formal deception, if you will, the ground of this rebellion. What's important for me to tell you at this stage is, look at Eve and contrast Eve with Adam in these verses. What's striking is, you find the serpent engaging with Eve, first of all. He brings this formal contradiction of the word of God to Eve. Not to the federal or the covenant representative that Adam was. Not to the one who is given charge, first of all, to keep the garden. To subdue and have dominion over the lesser creatures. He comes to Eve. And then, as he makes his way to Eve, what takes place next? 
Well, of course, Eve eats, and then Eve offers to Adam the fruit. Even in Genesis 3, you have a very simple, or you have a very simple paradigm. And that is that, first of all, Eve is deceived. But there is no deception here referred to Adam. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy tells us that it was not the man who was deceived. And Genesis 3 really reiterates that point. The conversation, the point of deception comes to the woman. But from the woman, man is given the fruit. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because everything, both in the New and Old Testaments, tell us very simply that Adam was not deceived when he ate. Adam was a man who knew what he was doing. And what's striking is, even whenever Adam seeks to make an excuse to God regarding his rebellion, he does not claim that he was deceived. Note what he says there at the end of, uh, well, toward the middle of the third chapter there. The woman whom thou gavest with me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Verse 13, Eve says that the serpent beguiled her. When Adam sinned, Adam knew precisely what he was doing. When Adam sinned, he ate not because of the serpent, but because of the woman. And so what you're supposed to see here is just how heinous Adam's transgression is. He sinned with knowledge. He sinned knowing what he was doing. He sinned seeing quite clearly through the deception of the serpent. He sinned in spite of all the light the Lord had given him. That's what we find in Genesis 3. That's what we find the Apostle Paul saying in 1 Timothy as well. But I I want to draw your attention as we close to something that perhaps does not strike us immediately out of the original. We read in verse 25 of chapter 2 these words. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And then if you come down to the third verse, sorry, the third chapter, the first verse, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. What's striking is the word subtle in 3.1 and the word uh, naked in 2.5 are from the same root. They're from the same Hebrew word. And the idea is, is that the inspired writer is showing us something very pointedly. Here, the serpent is described as one who is more Cunning, or uh, I forget how one translator uh, rendered it to make it more uh, more similar to us in the English as it is to the Hebrew. There is there are those who would translate this: they were nude, and the serpent here was crude, uh, or um, uh, that won't come to me. Sorry, guys. But the point is very simple: they saw themselves as though they lacked something that the serpent had. And so as you come to the seventh verse of the third chapter, and the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The Hebrew word changes there for naked only slightly. That is, they become aware of the senses that the entire thing was a sham. What's striking about this text, then, is that the writer is showing us a very basic idea. Man who was created in a good place who is given singular privileges, singular blessings, sought from the serpent what he should not have sought from any. And if he wanted good, he should have sought it only from the Lord. And because he did not seek to do so, 
He found that his activity only led him to vanity. It led him to nothingness. The application from just these seven verses are very simple. When Adam sinned, he sinned against God. He sinned against God's prerogative. When he fell in the garden, he transgressed a positive moral command given by the Lord. Do not eat of this particular tree. And of course, he violated that. He assumed for himself kingship in the garden that only God was king over. What's striking, friend, as you look at this text is that not only did man sin, not only did he sin against this positive moral command, he sinned also in denying the character of God. You see, what's striking in this is that the, the serpent here seeks to undermine the goodness of God, seeks to defile the name of God. And it's this that Eve believes. And it's this that Adam follows his wife after. A God that had been so good, had manifested so much blessing to man, even from the moment of his creation, they now begin to doubt whether he is so good a God as they've known him to be. And then, of course, in the first transgression, you see Adam here sinning against love as well. He was given a unique place among the lesser creatures. A place that was his simply because of God's free choice. Because of God's good pleasure alone. Adam was exalted over the creatures, enjoyed something of a coronation that we saw in the second chapter, and he sinned against all of it. And of course, Adam in the covenant of works was promised unique blessings. He was promised unique, prom- he was given unique promises for this life and the life to come. And against all of those, he sinned. When you come to the third chapter, and we'll close with this one, when you come to the third chapter, it's important to keep in mind all that the second chapter was emphasizing. Where had God placed man? What had God given to man up to this point? In what way had man been tutored to see only good from the hand of God? And then, friend, as we do so, and we come to man's transgression, we see only a glimpse, but we see nonetheless how wicked man was. And of course, by extension, how wicked we are. We who still sin against God's prerogative, who still doubt God's character and his goodness, we who still sin against manifest love and light. And so... Of course, this brings us to anticipate how the Lord is going to deal with man after his first transgression, which will take up, God willing, next Lord's Day as we take up the remainder of chapter 3. But as we close, let's stand once more and go to the throne of grace together. Our merciful and our gracious God, we come... Father, humbled under the word that we've just contemplated. Father, we see dimly, but through your word we do see that our first transgression was against so holy, so good, so loving a God. And Father, as we see Adam's first transgression, we of course see not only the root of our own, but we see even how we follow Adam in these ways. 
Father, we ask that as we contemplate these things, that you would cause us to be humbled as we ought to be. That you would cause us to lament that our grief is not what it ought, to, what it is, what it ought to be. And that you would cause us by your grace to grieve a mermaid. And Father, to do so as we look to the second Adam, the one who stood in all things where the first Adam fell. Father, we do thank you for him. We pray that even now, as we contemplate Adam's first transgression, the fall of Adam the first, Father, we pray that we would repose in Christ all the more and be thankful that ours is the one who stood in all things. And through him, then, even the curse itself is reversed. Bless us, O gracious God, as we continue in this time. Father, we pray that your hand of blessing will be known to us as we seek to worship you this morning. And Father, we do pray that the sounding forth of the gospel would yield great glory to Christ as our souls go out after him. So we pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.